this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. muting myself now. You're Nate, welcome, you're going to start talking, right? Oh, Snakes. am I? That's, yeah, it's your, yeah. it's your job. Your job. Yeah, I mean, please jump in because I this is something I'm still, we can, we'll struggle through some of the, what I call the metaphysics. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but just what exactly is going on really? And in what sense do we mean really? Um, I think that's a large part of the book. And a part of this is uh, hammering out plot and timeline. And those things are a little bit blurry, but so we follow Lauren and Ray. They're married together. And shortly thereafter, Ray commits suicide. Laura deals with this. She's his second wife. His first wife owns the place where he committed suicide. So he went back to his first wife to kill himself um, in her apartment. And um, she figures this out from a phone call because Lauren didn't show up to the funeral. Or, they, or she did show up to the funeral, but they didn't talk. And she spends the rest of the book mostly alone in this house and this is what I struggle with, discovers a person living in the house. She has fantasies that it's a, escaped somebody from a psychiat, you know, psychiatrist ward or a psychiatric ward uh, or a hospital or uh, some long lost uh, mentally disturbed member of the owners of the house that somehow found their way back to live. Uh, but she doesn't know who this person is and she takes care of them, gives them a nickname, Mr. Tuttle. and explores grief with this person. So uh, we we can we can get into all of that because at sometimes it's very specific that this is an actual shit and piss human being and at other times it could be a figment of the imagination just like um when she drives by any I don't want to get into too many specifics but um memory and time and being are all in play here. Uh, she says uh, the first line of the book is time seems to pass. And throughout the book, we get this notion that Mr. Tuttle, the person is connected across all time in his being. He sees the past as the present and uh, knows the future and connects all of these in his speech. That's hard to understand. It doesn't really make sense. It's a mix of verbs and it's sing song. And he is somehow connected to time and presence and being and somehow her husband and herself is able to say the words back of conversations that they've had exactly um, as if he was in the walls listening, but that's never proved. She doesn't know how in the world he is doing this. And so, you know, she applies science to the problem. She starts recording all the conversations. She uh, doesn't call out to anybody because she wants to keep him as her private thing. But she, you know, starts just to observe him and study him and uh, pay attention to him. And he disappears sometimes and comes around. And finally, the big twist, uh, the real sixth sense is that she performs forms this person into being with her body artist show. She inhabits this character and personality and the body type of this Mr. Tuttle person and even uses the tape recorder sounds and mimics moving her lips over top of it in the show so that she is producing the sound. 
Now, I think that she was making the sounds for Mr. Tuttle in the first place and created him all along. I'm flexible on this. I want to figure out what the truth is there. So, But what's interesting, if that's true, is that she created a character, recorded it, then used that recording as the authentic basis of another person in the show, and by performing as if she was lip-syncing that, brought him to life through the performance. And so, if you look back at the body artist, what I think is happening is her processing her grief in a manifest way that culminates into Mr. Tuttle and how she performs it. However, in an interview at the end of the book, she explicitly says this is not what's happening, that it's not just a grief-stricken woman who is dealing with her past husband and that's the result of the show. It's not that simple. It's more complicated. And at the end, yeah, we're left with her alone. Mr. Tuttle is left and uh, she's um, in the house by herself. I thought that, um, thank you. I think that that was good. I mean, I kind of got the idea that she was, if she said that this wasn't just processing grief, I mean, she was becoming, she had to become new. She had to become a new person because her life was completely upended. There was a point where she finally sat down and cried. There was a point where she finally dealt with the actual grief. And all that the Mr. Tuttle character ever did was echo or mimic. So even if you have a tape recorder, I mean, she said, you know, she talked about at one point how Ray would use the tape recorder and, you know, the Mr. Tuttle character heard her speaking downstairs while Ray was doing something upstairs with a tape recorder. And so found her voice that way. But I did kind of feel like it was just, you know, so how do you create a new self when your world falls apart? The very simple view of it, I thought. She's very much associated with her body. It's her art. It's her, you know, it's her life. It's her living. And so she experiments with being a man. And I think that also she was, when it comes down to that and you're married to someone he's a man and he kills himself, then there are all those things that you need to explore with the whys. The differences come up when all of a sudden they're gone. I mean, that goes in with her, you know, scrubbing herself down and bleaching her hair and trying to, you know, uh, expunge herself. And, you know, even, you know, at the very end, you know, she puts the spray bottle to her head and mimes shooting herself in the head as her husband did. That little act is trying to connect to the experience of of that while also knowing, as the narrative reminds us all the time, that that's not quite right. All of her imaginations for the way things are going, not all of them, but often her imaginations take a hard right turn into reality. So, for example, she's driving down the street and she sees a guy on a sun porch stretched out and imagines that she can see all of his life in the present of that moment and knows that he was like a miserly man who was like not nice to his children and all of these things and sees total clarity and then realizes that it's actually a paint can and a board and there's no person on there at all. Um, She just missaw and projected all of that there. And and this happens several times um, in in other ways. You know, she's trying to hold on to what's going, to what's happening for sure. And Mr. Tuttle, I mean, Mr. Tuttle does cry. He does moan just prior to the way that she finally breaks down and moans um, and has that moment of grief. You know, he does her voice and Ray's voice and is something altogether different whenever he's, he has his own voice as well. That's squeakish and, you know, shrill and uh, atonal. I I wonder why he's been described, he was described at one point in the books as retarded. Isn't that word used? I think that she dismissed that as a possibility. 
but that was a hypothetical thing that this could be. It could be that this was an escaped person, right? Like all the, I think I mentioned some of those, you know, she's tries to reckon them. And, and there's a specific line somewhere that was, she just wanted to analyze the situation and make sense of this because it's not clear at, to me, it's at the end of the story, what really happened in quotes. And I think to her also, it's not clear either. Um, because while we can imagine that this is her working through it and taking in the body, I still don't know what to make of that she took him to the mall one time. And whenever she came back, he had like defecated all over himself. I don't know metaphorically or spiritually what that is. I thought that she just never got out of the car. I just thought that, yeah, and that she just like was there sitting there in a, you know, she had just sat there the whole time. And I thought, I thought so too. But then she had like said that she had brought things back to the car in her shopping bags. Now that could have been a memory of what it's like to go to the shopping mall, granted. Um, and I thought similarly that it was her taking this in and maybe she just sat in the car and yeah, just lost it. It's a blurry reality because I mean, she tends, she explores him, you know, and like, washes him and bathes him. Yeah, I mean, it must be a figment of her imagination, but at the same time, it's presented as material fact at others. So, Can I just read this from this article that I saw in the New York Times about this book? It was written uh, back when it was published in 2001. Is that right? And the uh, writer, he says, Maybe you've already guessed that the body artist is not weightless after all. A metaphysical ghost story about a woman alone and not alone in a large rented seaside house. The novel invests the simplest domestic detail with a heavy burden of significance. Breakfast in the kitchen, the virtuoso first scene, which is a scene I love, expands in space and time, each showcase moment stretching to eternity, every movement, the shaking of the juice carton, seismic. The dailiness is at once inconsequential and eloquent, fast and dense. In just 124 pages, Delilo finds room to ponder large themes, how we structure time and how we are structured by it, how we express grief or fail to express it, how an artist makes sense or not of calamity and the equivocal role language plays in all of this. I love that first scene, that breakfast scene. I loved the way he captures each moment also, I wanted to ask about this. In the scene, you know, and they're having their coffee and, and looking out the window and talking and not talking. And I don't know if anybody else picked up from this, and I'm thinking maybe I'm crazy. But on page six, she picked a hair out of her mouth. She stood at the counter looking at it, a short, pale strand that wasn't hers and wasn't his. She kept looking at the hair. And then I noticed, I think it was on page 73, and this is why I, I think I love that first scene so much, because it, it just did so much. It was, I think it was when she was in the bathroom when um, Mr. Tuttle was in the bathtub. Yeah, right? she got another hair from him. Yeah. yeah, she felt something wispy at the edge of her mouth, half in, half out, that could only be a hair. She plucked it and brushed it with her thumb, a strand of her hair from the washcloth, and she couldn't feel it on her face anymore. And she looked at him and looked at her hand and maybe it was just an itch. I don't know. Again, this goes back to the, the way he, Delilo, just digs into the moment. I mean, a hair, right, obviously, in and of itself is the smallest of moments. And it's fascinating to me that it was such an intense thing at the first scene. And here it is 70 pages later, a very short book. Again, this question about this hair. 
Yeah, I mean that's happening all over the place. That that's yeah. really what's I mean what's going on. Uh, there's a time where Mr. Tuttle. Yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. Was that she was so she was so freaked out about it, and she was so sure that it wasn't hers and it wasn't his, and who knows about that? But it's a rental. <laughs> it's not their house. It could be a fucking hair anywhere. It's somebody else's house. <laughs> you think that it's like sterile when you get there? I know, but she cues in on it, and Delilo writes about it. You know, yeah. about that particular hair. That's what I find fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was definitely Chekhov's gun that, that would show up later. And yeah. then was not surprised when it turned out that it was from, you know, if you're thinking of Mr. Tuttle as, as her, then it was going to be, I mean, this is something she's put on her. She put the washcloth to her face and then there was a hair. It was her face. It was her hair. I but don't at know. the same time, she was sure it wasn't in the beginning. I don't know about you. The first time I found a gray hair, I was sure it wasn't mine. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> I was just going to say that on seven, that idea is expanded a little bit. She said uh, she scraped her upper teeth over her tongue to rid her system of the complicated sense memory of someone else's hair. That complicated sense memory, I think, is useful in thinking about like how she uses her body and what's going on in the story. And I, I yeah, I, I just love that first scene, too. One of my favorite parts is uh, it's this on 14. Uh, she puts uh, her hand on Ray's shoulder and then moves past him. And they have birds on a feeder outside. And she says that, uh, or the narrative says, the birds broke off the feeder in a wing whirr that was all B's and R's. The letter B followed by a series of vibrato R's. But that wasn't it at all. That wasn't anything like it. And this, you know, that wasn't it. That's not it. Somehow, what does somehow mean? All of these like trying to dig in and questioning and the narrative will wrap up real tight like that sometimes, give you something beautiful and then unwind itself by saying that's not the reality either. They're missing something. And I just think that that's a beautiful thing that happens throughout the book. Maybe that's why a response on Delilo's part about this monumental grief. Because, I mean, I don't know what y'all's experience was, but I went, I read through the first scene and I was like, this is amazing. And it's, to me, it's water just passing through. I'm very easily floating. And that's the sense I got from the first scene. And then, of course, turn the page, he's killed himself, which immediately introduces a major mountain in the water. It was shocking to me. And I'm just wondering, given the structure of that first chapter and then the second chapter on Delilo's part, it seemed like these moments of life at the breakfast table, you got a sense of sort of the difficulty or non-difficulty in the marriage or two people happy and not happy, just the whole sort of dynamic of that existence. And then it's kind of thrown into this chaos, this chaos that is so immense that it's hard to capture even. And I'm wondering if after that suicide, after that second chapter, that's why the rest of the book is structured in such a way that Nathan says, I'm not quite sure if that's real or not real. You know what I'm saying? Because the quality and the extent and the expansion of the grief is so enormous. Yeah, I think that's why there's two scenes where it clips out the objective views of someone else reporting on the fact of the death and then the fact of the show. Because I think it might be impossible really to do that or to make the point within the worldview of this character because it is this transient reality. Because it's all memory, right? Once they're gone, it's all memory. I also saw the difference between the first scene, which I also loved, and I think it was sort of displaying how, um, at least from her perspective, that they were communicating incredibly well. 
not verbally at all times. And then in contrast to her meeting Mr. Tuttle, that sort of throws into question the idea of communication in general and if it is in fact uh, understood mutually. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Tuttle is a bit of a, I mean, a, a shock to her system because he doesn't seem to make any clear sense. You know, he's he can look through time, it seems, and just stare off. Uh, he, he disappears and then comes in. He He kind of rejects it was put something like the intersection between reality and space and language. There's got to be an imaginary point where you make a connection and can call something a word. And he doesn't seem to have that. She tries to tell him the words for things and gets mimicry back. And she can lose herself in his reverie and speaking, or he can surprise her and not be talking and she'll be reading him a story and then realize that he is speaking in Ray's voice to her and she hadn't noticed it. But if she goes back, she can remember starting to hear it a little bit. I mean, it's very fuzzy. And I think that's what's, I mean, really beautiful about this book is memory and presence, really. It seems like that happens a lot. There's a sort of uh, recurring phenomenon where meaning or significance or recognition or something like that will show up obliquely. But when she turns to try to attend it directly, it seems somehow insubstantial or to have an unfixed meaning. Yeah, the idea of meaning. Do you remember the scene where um, she's confronted by the owners of the house who want to, uh, I guess, what is it, get a chest of drawers out? Mm -hmm. Because it has meaning to, to them. And the scene is almost awkward in a way because she seems non-responsive, almost like a, the Tuttle character, right? <laughs> and I think it's just, the chapter just ends, it kind of drifts off without really understanding how it ended, if she acquiesced to their demands or if she uh, stayed non-communicative. <laughs> yeah, it does just switch right over into the next day. Uh, and I thought that it was interesting because she, I mean, I think it even said she was non-responsive because they didn't, it started with her fantasy. It started the way Way that her fantasy started of a person who was going to come and explain to her who Mr. Tuttle was. And no one's going to be able to explain to her who Mr. Tuttle is. She has to do that herself. You know, it's coming, I, I thought, it's coming of her. This is from her. No one can come from the outside and say, this is who this is, because you've created him. You know, you've created this. This is your grief. Yeah, there, there are a few times where she thinks she sees things from the corner of her eye and thinks, oh, maybe I should go to the eye doctor. Because you have these moments you think that maybe you can grasp. And you can have moments of, of clarity, like little, you know, you can dissect a day. But you can't take the whole thing in its entire, like you can't understand. You can look at a morning and say everything seemed fine. But then the enormity of number one, he's gone. Number two, he killed himself. He killed himself in his in his first wife's apartment. I thought she was his. I thought that she was actually his third wife. Our character. I think you're right about Lauren that. Lauren is yeah. actually his third. I think that Lauren is his third wife. Where, where do you get that? Mm. I didn't get that. I thought he was. She I was think his... it was actually written. I think it was. And then I also loved the idea of you know people become covetous of the dead and the scene where his first wife basically tries to take him back as, you know, I was never gone. And he came to my place to kill himself. Like he was my husband, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then the, just like the confusion of that when someone dies, people do want, I mean, it's almost like with Camus, how, boy, I never like love them like I love them when they're dead. Everyone <laughs> wants a piece of the dead person. They want their uh, experience with them to be significant. Or the experience, right? Yeah. The understanding. She understood him rather than another person. Yeah, that's why he came here to kill himself. <laughs> Watch what you're proud of. 
everybody wants to take ownership of it. And there's a sort of uh, thing that's going on, I think, with Laura sometimes where, is it Laura or Lauren? It's Lauren. Lauren. Right. Okay. It's Lauren. Confuse right. her with Laura. Well, I want to get that right so there's no yeah. confusion when we're listening to this. There's a constant theme, I think, of her trying to objectify her own perceptions um, and her own memories. Uh, and, and I think to me, that's a big part of what Mr. Tuttle is. He's this sort of, uh, he's this reflection that she's either consciously or un- unconsciously objectifying in order to try to validate uh, her understanding of Ray. And sometimes he seems to be very, I, th- I think that corresponds to how true and how vividly he shows up is how successful she is at objectifying. Cause she's looking at this divide of what is what is this subjective element of my perception of my husband you know what is uh what is construct what is uh my personal composition of him that you know that creative element to perception and then what is the thing itself what is what is him you know how does he understand himself what is the thing beyond perception i think that's what's interesting about the fact that she is the body artist is because this first person, third person split is sort of an obsession for Don DeLillo. He's explored it in, you know, many different novels, but the body is the place where we get that convergence, right? It's the only site or territory where we get to examine the first person and the third person at once. And so her imitation of him, you know, her art, I think I, I tried to sort of draw up a little list of binaries, you know, where you could get that sort of mind body thing in all of these different ways in the novel, you know, the the art and the body and, you know, the feel of things and then the thing itself, the conception, you know, what does she notice and what does she fabricate? That's all wrapped up in the way that she perceives Mr. Tuttle. I mean, did you guys get any of that? Yeah. I mean, didn't she, um, she was asking Mr. Tuttle or was trying to demand of Mr. Tuttle to kind of explain, or like tell her about Ray or to tell her more in that sense you're saying, or you could think that she, she thought her understanding or her relationship with Ray was something objective, something that was out there, uh, that she demanded Mr. Tuttle tell her, but he never gave that up. Right. I mean, he would do things, you know, but he couldn't be made to operate, you know, he wasn't like a toy you could wind up and like or he he wasn't like putting on a video of your wedding or something you know she couldn't go back and like remember and see how he was and hear his laugh really you know she had things like the smell of smoke in the house and his bullshit autobiography and again sense memories all over the place that were complicated and wrapped up in her and her identity and how she used to think something and then have him respond i mean just the internal exploration of this is you don't see grief really tackled like this. And this way, I believe in ghosts in a metaphorical way, because they can still haunt you um, the way that they haunt Lauren, you know, that it sounds like maybe he's in the room. Now he really is in the room and I can see him. Oh, no, wait, that was out of the corner of my eye. That doesn't, you know, he's gone now. And I think that that's what Tuttle taps into is that sense memory, you know, and um, and in her own thoughts. I just found another one where she's questioning him and he says, somehow, what is somehow? And she says, shut up. But then like 30 pages later, she says the same thing. Somehow, what is somehow? You know, this is her internal and external process, like going in and out. Well, and then who was the, you know, the real Tuttle was this pathetic teacher from grammar school, right? Yeah, that everyone felt sorry for. Yeah, she's a, she's assigned this, like, okay, it sounds like this person who in my youth I found pathetic, or we all found pathetic. Even though I think she liked him, she was going in weak. 
She's going in weak because she's had this terrible experience of her husband dying by his own hand. And how does she choose to relate to that? It starts using a character who is pathetic. I'm sure that she is seeing herself as pathetic from the outset because something else is obviously going on with Ray that morning, right? You're having a very normal breakfast and he was obviously planning and she knew he was planning something because she says at the end that she hid his keys and, you know, please don't go and don't worry. You know, I'm just going to pick up a few things. If we need anything, you know, I'll be back. I'll be back. He's not going to be back. And and she somehow knows that. But if you just take it and, and slice everything into the moments, it's a different thing, right? It's, it's not the morning that, I mean, it still is the morning that he killed himself, but we had a, we had this connection. Yeah. The moment moments are interesting because the thing is sort of composed of the moments, sort of like, you know, the layers of an onion. It is just all those layers, you know, amalgamated, but there's no sort of nucleus, you know, there's no center essential thing that is this person. And it, it reminds me of like in White Noise, the guy's name was Mr. Gray or something like that. And uh, Jack Gladney's like, you know, who, who is uh, Mr. Gray, Babette, the person she's supposed to be having an affair with? And she's like, well, he's really a composite. He's not anybody. <laughs> he's just, and it, Tuttle is kind of a composite like that, right? He's, he's a composite. He's a piece of this teacher. He's a piece, he's pieces of Ray. He's moments, he's memories. And like Nathan was saying, like sometimes the environment evokes him very strongly. And then sometimes he's sort of not there and she's looking for him. And it reminds me of that way, you know, when someone's not there anymore and you, you lose someone, that sometimes you can feel them very strongly. Um, sometimes the environment that you're in or some memory you have really brings them across to you and they feel right there. And then other times you're looking for them, you're struggling to hold on to those memories, but it feels like they're fleeting and they don't come back as strong. And there's something about it too that the more you try to summon them vividly in that way, the more they sort of get diluted. You know, I want to say, I want to read this for a second. Okay, it's on page 39. She was in the kitchen when she heard it this time. She carried her tea upstairs, the rooms at the end of the second story hall, the dim third story bulbs blown and most of the furniture removed, short stairway to the cupola. She looked into the stillness, head swiveling, her upper body projected into the structure, which was fairly broad and used as storage space. Her tea was cold by the time she stood on the floor of the cupola. She poked into old clothing layered in cardboard boxes and looked at the documents gone brittle in leather folders. There was a stuffed owl and a stack of unframed watercolors badly warped. She saw a twirling leaf just outside the window. It was a small amber leaf twirling in the air beneath a tree branch that extended over the roof. There was no sign of a larva web from which the leaf might be suspended or a strand of some bird's nest building material. Just the leaf in midair, turning. She found him the next day in a small bedroom off the large empty room at the far end of the hall on the third floor. He was smallish and fine-bodied, and at first she thought he was a kid, sandy-haired and roused from deep sleep or medicated maybe. He sat on the edge of the bed in his underwear. In the first second, she thought he was inevitable. I think that's an important line. She felt her way back in time to the earlier indications that there was someone in the house, and she arrived at this instant unerringly with her perceptions all sorted and endorsed. This kind of makes me wonder, we're all weaving back and forth. Is he a manifestation of her grief? Is he a memory? Is he reality? Is the grief so enormous that he's inevitable, like she said here? But what does that line say? I mean, it's phenomenal, that line. Yeah, he's tiny. He's sitting on the other edge of his bed. 
he's a sad little thing, right? That's what made me think that he was the personification of her grief. So helpless. He was a child there. And that's what she is. Well, that's what you are in the face of your grief, right? And until you deal with it, you are, you know, a turtle on your back. You're a child. You're powerless before your grief if you don't deal with it. Again, it's interesting. It's somebody else's house. I think that that's, by the time I got to the end of it, I realized how important it was that they were, that it was someone else's house. She isn't going through, I mean, it's a house where they stayed, but she's not going, you know, all of these things that are in the attic, the, you know, the warped watercolors and stuff like that, the dresser that someone wants to, you know, that the owner comes to take away, it's not theirs. It's not hers. All those things that are in the house, this person in the house isn't hers. The hair, whatever. I think that that was very interesting that he placed it somewhere that wasn't their home. Well, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about grief and the way that DeLillo gets at it is that when you're grieving, you're constantly somewhere else, right? It's whatever you're actually doing, you're constantly drawn back to, you know, these memories and this thing that is stealing your concentration. It's sort of, you know, siphoning you away from the moment that you would otherwise be experiencing in your kind of a divided consciousness. There's a lot of time in this novel. And I read uh, that he considers, and I won't go into this much, but he considers this book that came not long after that Point Omega to be a companion piece, almost kind of a sequel to this book. What? Whoa. And and uh, that book was all about time as well. And I don't know. I mean, did you guys have any thoughts about the way that time plays into the way that we experience other people and our relationships and how we know each other and ourselves? Yeah, I mean, that that boundary between like, you know, um, other people. And I was just looking at this. Um, this was in the, the breakfast scene. I've been looking backwards and I can't find it. I think it's apropos of nothing, um, but it's in the middle of 18. Uh, she says, all day yesterday, I thought it was Friday. He said, what? Or you become someone else, one of the people in the story, doing dialogue of your own devising. You become a man at times, living between the lines, doing another version of the story. She thought and read. That's her, you know, ex- exploring this and what the exploration is, because the narrative seems like the voice in her head. It, it seems does. like we're living through this. You know, she second guesses herself and the narrative does also. So as far as exploring other people. Well, I mean, it's, it makes sense. It makes sense because the grief is so overwhelmingly huge. I mean, it'd be different, let's say, if he died after a long illness or something. I mean, uh, although when he went, drove off and she tried to hide his keys, she knew he wasn't coming back. Uh, that, that's the that's her secondhand memory. So that I, I oh, believe okay. that happens the second time whenever she deals with it. That's after she cries or just before she cries. She goes upstairs and she's remembering the last time that she saw him. And she wants to hide his keys, eat them, you know, destroy them so that he can't leave. And this is her fantasy, knowing now what she knows. But I don't think at the time that she did know that he was going to commit suicide. His second wife, though, did and said so in the phone call. And interestingly, he went there to commit suicide and not in the house. I mean, imagine how different this could have been if Ray had killed himself in the house. I mean, it couldn't be. He would have known that that wouldn't have been, that would have been too much for her. I mean, in a way, there's no material presence of her husband left. He expunged himself and now she's left with just the phantoms and uh, conjures this guy, Tuttle, you know, out of uh, out of all that, you know, she's known about him and conjectures and thinks. Why do you think that Delilo chose to make her the second, third wife, whatever, I guess the third wife, that the woman who we're learning about here, whose grief we're experiencing is third wife. 
Why do you think that is? It fits in the theme of significance and time. She obviously only knew him for a short duration, and therefore she can't fully, or he's not fully hers. And I thought the first scene kind of, I mean, I was confused about this, because I thought the first scene was about the significance of time and how order and duration matters in significance. I mean, everything is so well explained in that first scene, and uh, the moments gain significance due to their sort of duration. The bird is described in the feeder, the smell of the soybeans or whatever is described. And that kind of breaks apart for the rest of the novel, and I wasn't sure what to make of that. You know, it's kind of abstracted away. Instead of, uh, you know, an ordered sequence of events, it becomes chaotic and abstract. And even her art piece kind of dealt with the idea of repetition and meaninglessness almost. So I'm not sure if uh, anyone else picked up on that or had any ideas on that. Yeah, I like part of what you just said. The question of whether you can ever really know someone, I think, is is part of what you're getting at, Laura, and what Cesare raised. I mean, that that's a part of this novel, I think. You know, he had two other wives before. They knew a part of him that she never can know. And um, the, the other wife kind of throws that in her face a little bit in the phone call. But it's true of every relationship we have. We don't have total ownership over the other person. We don't know the self you know, of themselves that they know, and we don't know the aspect of them from other per- other people's perspectives. And so there's a kind of uh, alienation there, even in our most intimate relationships, that is significant, I think. Yeah, I think that... Uh... A few of the things in here made me realize why people thought that David Foster Wallace cribbed a little from him. Be the what he cribbed a little from Delilo. Yeah, there the idea that you can never know, you can never be in somebody else's head. You can never really know anyone. I think that it's doubtful that you can never actually know yourself. But then the idea that there's someone that you would that you would know. I thought that there were a few things that were interesting about her being the third wife. In that he obviously hadn't stopped trying. The, the clue from the second or first wife, who knows, that he's always been, you know, this was always inevitable, that he was going to kill himself. You know, you think that you could have changed that or you th- if you think that you could have done something about that. And really what it was is if, if you think that he could have done something about that, there is no way that another marriage, another screenplay, you know, a, a house, in, you know, by the seashore, I'm making quote marks, you know, he had everything going for him, a beautiful wife, a lovely relationship. And still he had that he was going to kill himself. I think that that is part of why the third, why she was the third wife, because it wasn't that he hadn't made attempts to get him, you know, to move himself into a better place. It just didn't work. Yeah. And he seemed a little envious of her happiness in the breakfast scene. He says, you know, you're happy. You're always happy. You know, you're happy in this house. (laughs) Yeah. Shut the fuck up. It's seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that was a part of it, too, that they were having a little bit of there was a little antagonism between them uh, in the breakfast scene. And and you get from him that this isn't regular. They usually don't have breakfast together. Um, But today they are. And she's trying to get him to talk about something and he won't. I'm not sure. It seems like that could have been the suicide, but it also may have been because they start talking about a sound in the house that they both heard. And you don't know it yet, but is the beginnings of Mr. Tuttle or just the presence um, that they're in a rented house with in someone else's space. It's a rented house. It's a rented marriage, a rented relationship, rented life. We're all just renters, right? (laughs) Yeah, we are, actually. (laughs) We have pretty damn short leases, too. So... And you know what? They they actually said that in the book. It says that in the book that she stayed past the lease. 
Well, um, and because he said that she would stay there. And then even later, she said that her knowing that that's what he wanted and her doing it might annul any truth of his prediction. She might just be, what do you call that? Uh, whenever you do the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, she could be doing it to honor him. And it's not exactly the prophetic vision that he had of her staying there, but they're connected there. And so that's interesting. That's another way that like their relationship and the, the spiritual element of that between them manifests itself really, you know, because this was just a, an idea that he had about her and then she was bringing it to be. You know, there was the moment that she had with Tuttle where she said, why, why did you just change tenses? You, you went from the, I think like you went from the past to the present to the future, or you went from the past to the present. You said that I do stay, you know, you said I would, and that now you say I do. And I thought that was interesting. No, you're right. Because that, that whole thing is spattered across this, this novel. It's like, there are a number of times when time seems to sort of break down in that James Joyceian kind of way. Like I'm thinking of like, Ulysses in the Circe chapter or the present seems in the, and the past and the future all seem to sort of like mix and meld together. And she's, uh, she's seeing things before they happen and anticipating things that are going to happen later. And then when they do happen, it's like, oh yes, you know, I knew that this was going to happen. Of course it's, you know, it's happening just as I thought it would. And it's funny. Like I, I hear people saying that things like that all the time. Uh, I've heard people with different theories about the election lately say, you know, oh, things are happening, you know, just according to my theories of the world, just according to my my understanding of ideology. Things, you know, are unplaying exactly as as I perceived they would. And isn't it weird how we all kind of do that, you know? <laughs> Man, anybody who wants to take ownership of this shit can have it. <laughs> I am not covetous of this moment in time. Like, take it. But you're right. He's right. Daniel, you're right. I thought that it was a little, like, I got a little bit of a feel of, and I can't remember, I mean, I read the book 40, 30 years ago, like, it was either Malloy or Malone, one of the Beckett novels, and I got the feeling when she's, when, you know, she's got a voice in her head, I had a little bit of a feeling of Beckett, of like, and I can't, mm. like, I can't put my finger on the scene, but it's like walking down a road, of the sparseness of it. I mean, it starts out so detailed with that breakfast. And then it becomes a sparse thing and you have to switch gears. I don't know that Beckett ever starts out <laughs> detailed, <laughs> but certainly is sparse. You know, there's a lot of, you have to read a lot into what he writes. I got the feeling. That's a great connection. I have found Beckett to be the most difficult for me to understand. I spent more time trying to parse Beckett than anything. I mean, certainly way more than Joyce. Because I love the language, I love the way that it that it moves, and I of what I could parse. I loved what he was saying, but I always found him difficult. Well, a lot of people I've I know find Delillo, or I, I've understand I understand him to be a divisive author. A lot of people I know love him. A lot of people can't stand his language; they find it cold. And he he's associated uh, with a sort of postmodern fiction, which I don't know that he would identify with personally. But he's sort of shoved in that box a lot of the time. Different people feel strongly in different ways about him. I could not get. I, I think I tried reading White Noise three or four times. I just couldn't. Get get into it. And maybe I'll try again now that I actually enjoyed this so much. There was something else that I tried to read by him and now I don't remember what it was and put that down also. Like nothing about it thrilled me. And then I tried reading White Noise again because 
Nathan liked it so much, and I was like, still can't quite get in there. But maybe now that I've read something that I enjoyed, I will give it another go. Yeah, this is my first Delilah. You liked it? Um, I'd say I was, uh, I, I like her conversation almost more than the, uh, <laughs> than the book. I really liked the beginning and I was really wasn't sure of the project he was undertaking. I still think we should dig into the art piece and exactly what she was getting out of that. I know it was mentioned how she had to inhabit him. Read a little of it because that's a good point because that's the title of the book and the center of this. I mean, it's arguable that this whole thing is an art piece of hers. Well, he's all in his head, right? He's a writer. The, you know, the husband, Ray, and she's all in her body. Not that she's not right. a thinker, but she's all in her body. <laughs> and he shoots himself in the head. Also interesting. You know, I heard something interesting about, just by the way, that, and this this might just be fiction that I read from like Chuck Palahniuk or something, but I heard that when women shoot themselves, they shoot themselves in the heart. And that when men shoot themselves, they shoot themselves in the head. I'd never heard that before, but it was interesting and I think pertinent to this. Is this backed up by statistics no 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 no. this isn't this isn't a science but i guess it could be found out i mean it's based it's a fact claim but um i had heard that and uh i thought that was an interesting getting to this like trying to knock out your intellect or trying to knock out your body you know yeah i tend to shoot myself in the foot um, <laughs> <laughs> and i do it at least on a weekly basis uh, i haven't tried it, for the head or the heart I didn't mean to derail there, but um, we should talk about the art piece itself. Um, I can read a bit from the the review chapter. Body art and extremists, slow, sparse, and painful. She is not pale skinned so much as colorless, bloodless, and ageless. She is raw-boned and slightly bug-eyed. Her hair looks terroristic. It is not trimmed but chopped, and the natural chestnut luster is ash-white now, with faint pink traces. I'll skip ahead. The piece called Body Time sneaked into town for three nights, unadvertised except by word of mouth, and drew eager audiences whose intensity did not always maintain itself for the duration of the show. Hartke clearly wanted her audience to feel time go by, viscerally, even painfully. This is what happened, causing walkouts among the less committed. They missed the best stuff. Hartke is a body artist who tried to tries to shake off the body, hers anyways. There's the man who stands in an art gallery while a colleague fires bullets into his arm. This is art. There is a lavishly tattooed man who has himself fitted with a crown of thorns. This is art. Hartke's work is not self-strutting or self-lacerating. She's acting, always in the process of becoming another or exploring some root identity. I'll just skip part the last piece which describes it. Uh, Hartke's piece begins with an ancient Japanese woman on a, lo- on a bare stage, gesturing in a stylized manner of no drama. And it ends 75 minutes later with a naked man, emaciated and aphasic, trying desperately to tell us something. Interesting. The Japanese woman from the uh, from the neighborhood. You just brought that to mind. <laughs> I should say that I got the I got the read along yeah. thing. Like I have the book on my Kindle, and I got the audio that went along with it. And I listened to the book. I, I just took four flights, and I listened to the book on every flight, and I fell asleep while listening on every flight and tried to find my way back to where I was. And I actually recognize what you just said, but I know I was sleeping when it went by. <laughs> But it's interesting that she notices the Japanese woman in the neighborhood on the porch a number of times during the book, right? And the last time that she saw her, she was doing nothing, I think. Well, the last time she saw her, she realized that the woman had her hands balled up into her sleeves uh, to keep them warm. Oh, and she wished that she had done that, right? Yes, and yeah, she realized she that the whole character was in that motion and that she should have ex- could explore that. 
There's another part of this chapter that I wanted to and add to Cesare. Well, if you have something, I had something a little bit longer to say about the performance piece. So if you have something shorter, go ahead. <laughs> I don't have anything shorter myself, but I wanted to add something to what Cesare uh, read, which was, this is on page 113. Quote, maybe the idea is to think of time differently, she says, Lauren says, after a while. Stop time or stretch it out or open it up. Make a still life that's living, not painted. When time stops, so do we. We don't stop. We become stripped down, less self-assured. I don't know. In dreams or high fevers or doped up or depressed. Doesn't time slow down or seem to stop? What's left? Who's left? Didn't she say she wanted this art piece to be even slower? Yeah. Yeah. She says she's not happy with it, um, you know, and could do more and says it probably needs to be more spare, slower uh, then the person, you know, she's like, maybe three hours. And then the person says, what about six or seven? And she says, what about eight? And Nathan, there's your connection to Point Omega. Because if you remember how that book opens, it's a 24-hour slowed down yes. art exhibition of the movie Psycho. I thought of that at the time and did not remember it. it yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. So for everybody else, what it is, is like this, that, that book opens with this guy. He's attending this art uh, piece and it's the movie Psycho slowed down to where it takes 24 hours to watch. And he's just standing in there over and over watching this movie happen really, really slowly and talking about what you notice and how it changes the way you understand. The way you understand the movie, you mean? The, the movie and just the phenomenon of what you're perceiving. I mean, oh. what, what, that's the thing. What is the movie then? The movie is, it breaks down into those perceptions. And what are they? When was that book written? Point Omega. I'm not sure. It's it's one of his later ones. It might, might be his second latest one. So there, there's also, you know, you've, you've got time. As much as you study time and as much as you want to stretch things out, when there is death, there is an end of time. And that's it. And so wanting to make it longer is interesting because it's going to, it's this examination of, of the death of some, you know, you can't go back and get that time again. And yeah, of course you would want to stretch it out. Well, it's the end, but it's not the end at the same time, right? It's, so it's like, what is different? The, the physical other person there is removed, but your ideas and your memories of them sort of keep going. I, I thought of like this, uh, there was a couple of guys that I did this theater study group with for a while, and we studied this guy, Jerzy Grotowski, and he was a Polish uh, theater figure, and he was a really sort of weird, obscure, sort of new agey kind of guy, but extremely interesting in my opinion. And, and for a while, he was doing this thing where he was taking these people out, and they, were, they had sort of dispensed with the audience at this point, and they were doing performance art almost totally for the sake of the actors themselves. And he talked about it as the actors being the seat of experience. So in my understanding, what he was trying to do is he was trying to break down that barrier between the spectator and the actor, which is sort of that same first person, third person dynamic. I just wanted to read a little bit of this part from the Skrotowski source book where he's talking about it, because it reminds me so much of the body artist piece that uh, this girl is doing. Um, and he's talking about the habits of uh, daily life in the body. And he says, uh, what happens when daily life techniques of the body, which are habits in a definite cultural circle, are suspended? When they're suspended, what appears? Well, what first appears is the deconditioning of perception. 
habitually an incredible quantity of stimuli are flowing into us from outside. Something is speaking to us all the time. But we are programmed in such a way that our attention records exclusively those stimuli that are in agreement with our learned image of the world. In other words, all the time we tell ourselves the same story. Mm. So that to me sort of gets at like this thing where, you know, like the birds are looking at them through the window and she's wondering, what do the birds see when they see in here? And that kind of obviates the fact that there are these stories about what's going on that we've already interpreted as we've perceived um, events through time, people, personality, you know, what we're doing, the situation at hand that the birds wouldn't perceive. They just see this sort of raw stimuli or they see it in whatever way they interpret the world. All of this sort of stuff that, like Nathan was saying, we project onto the situation. How do you distinguish that from what's really going on? That's a part of it. Um, back to that review section, I think that, I, and I think I referenced this at the beginning, um, but she says this, how simple it would be if I could say this is a piece that comes directly out of what happened to Ray, but I can't. Be nice if I could say this is the drama of men and women versus death. I want to say that, but I can't. It's too small and secluded and complicated, and I can't, and I can't, and I can't. This is the narrative of the interviewer now. Then she does something that makes me freeze in my seat. She switches to another voice. It's the voice of the naked man's, Mr. Tuttle's. And then she excuses herself and ditches the restaurant. I, it's not It's not clear, and I, I guess I don't really have a, a point. I, I, I'm trying to draw these threads in because, I mean, whenever she's seeing the Japanese woman, whenever she's seeing Ray, whenever she's being these different things, she's processing it, and it has a you know, own level of truth. And, you know, going to what you were saying, Mary, you know, and, and Daniel, I think that there is a little bit of a division here because whenever someone does die, they do die and time does stop for them. But whenever someone dies in your life, you are continuing on with that memory and with those things. And it's complicated because then it's a... Yeah, but that's a change in time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they both are. And it's relative in this way. Someone can just be gone, but then someone else can still be processing you and you can still be living on, so to speak, and, you know, be changed in memories and in stories or whatever. You can do it in a day. I mean, you can you can do something in the morning or something can, you know, someone can say something to you in the morning that meant nothing to them offhand. It can ruin your entire fucking day. <laughs> so I don't know if this has ever happened to anyone else, but, it, you know, it's, then you realize like this meant nothing. So it's not even just if they're dead. It's like they walked away. The moment is over. You could take a moment and replay it for the rest of your life if you want to, you know, and, and focus on that. It's interesting, Daniel, you're talking about that um, that theater group. I think I read something about that or saw a film or something about that group going out into the forest and spending a bunch of time just, you know, it's just about them. And I wonder about time, if the way that we perceive things, because we're mayflies, because we have such short durations, certainly compared to a tree or a rock or a piece of dirt, you know, we, or even, you know, a whale, like we have a very short amount of time. And certainly we have a short amount of time where we're, where we have our faculties, where we can actually do a lot of processing that we would consider, you know, adult you know, processing that we're involved in. And so all of the things that we don't notice, we don't notice because we don't have time because we're mayflies. And I think that that kind of connects in with Mr. Tuttle and what he's allowing her to do, which is to go through different times and tap into something that's 
you know, the, I guess the, the intersection of those and some kind of like ultimate present, you know, that, that, that's moving and doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's outside of those. I mean, like you're saying, you know, we see the world in the terms that we've, you know, figured out. So we wake up and we're in our apartment in wherever city, like we start constructing these things. And, you know, you can ask specific questions of people and they can give you specific answers, but you can't really do that with Mr. Tuttle. And you can press him on something and it'll just kind of go sideways or dip in and out of something. Um, I want to read a section here. This is page 104. His future is not under construction. It is already there, susceptible to entry. She had it on tape. She did not want to believe this was the case. It was her future, too. It is her future, too. She played the tape a dozen times. It means your life and death are set in place, just waiting for you to keep the appointments. She listened to him say, don't touch it. I'll clean it up later. It is the thing you know nothing about. Then she said it to her, said it herself some days later. He'd been in there with her. It was her future, not his. How much myth do we build into our experience of time? Don't touch it, she said. He'd known this was going to happen. There were the words she would say. He'd been in there with her. I'll clean it up later. She wanted to create her future, not enter a state already shaped to her outline. Something is happening. It has happened. It will happen. This is what she believed. There is a story, a flow of consciousness and possibility. The future comes into being, but not for him. He hasn't learned the language. There was to be an imaginary point, a non-place where language intersects with our perceptions of time and space. And he is a stranger at this crossing, without words or bearings. But what did she know? Nothing. This is the rule of time. It is the thing you know. It is the thing you know nothing about. She listened to him say it on tape, in a voice that was probably hers. But she could have made it up, much of it, not from scratch, but in retrospect, in memory. But she had it on tape, and it was him, and he was saying it. Then she said it herself, but so what? So what if she said the same thing in the same words? Means nothing. People saying the same thing. She had it on tape saying it, but she might easily have misremembered what she herself said when he dropped the water glass. Might have been different. Slightly, very moderately different. But so what if it's the same? Past, present, and future are not amenities of language. Time unfolds into the seams of being. It passes through you, making and shaping. But not if you are him. This is a man who remembers the future. Don't touch it. I'll clean it up later. Which, by the way, is my one of my favorite lines in this book. Don't touch it. I'll clean it up later. So this, to me, was saying a lot about time and also bringing into perspective or bringing into point Mr. Tuttle, that this is a man who remembers the future. And I know that, like we had mentioned earlier, that he had been described as retarded or not. I don't know. But the other thing that comes out of this to me is that this chaos in this page and a half, it seems to me to also reflect, obviously, the enormous grief that she's going through and that it's just overtaking her. And that if, in fact, Mr. Tuttle is there. And in reality, of course, he remembers the future. Of course, he's bringing up time this way in a very chaotic way. Aside from the fact that I'm sounding chaotic myself. <laughs> but you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm fascinated by the way he's written this in order to write about this kind of grief. It has to be this chaotic. Because even when we've talked in the last few minutes or last 10 minutes or whatever about when someone dies, time takes on a different character for them, obviously, and for us, because they become a memory for us. So we are remembering the future 
Anyway, I'm just reacting to the chaos of his writing, which is, is beautiful, but necessary because of the expanse of this grief that she is going through. And again, have we all come to a, a decision as to whether Mr. Tuttle is real? <laughs> He's a real character. I'm sure it's the most interesting question. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you have to. Like, I, I, I don't Yeah. I think that you can interpret him dif- interpret him different ways as you're moving along in- with your own interpretation of the story. Saying I was leaning towards imagination and the uh, the weird sexual aspect of it kind of convinced me of that because I didn't want to deal with uh, what it would mean if she was you know sexually fondling a a person that escaped from a psychiatric institution. <laughs> right, <laughs> two days after her husband killed himself. I didn't get the sense of the time that had passed from like where his suicide fit in, except for that it happened later in the day from that morning. And then all of the time that she spent afterward in that house, I never got a a real sense of where I was in, in relation to his death or her being in that house, because there were so many things that happened that I think were actually spaced farther apart than a day or two. You know, the landlord yeah, he's, coming he's and made ambiguous and yeah. troubled so many of the markers by which you would know time in the novel that it's really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. We know something about the lease. And I think that there's phone calls that come from her friend who ends up being the interviewer at the end. And then, you know, also the second wife. But yeah, I mean, it does get, I mean, it's not a very long time. I mean, we're not talking years, you know, even by the end of it, I don't think, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of what you mean the time of the whole book. Yes. Yeah. The time span, I think, must be some within a year, a couple of months um, uh, that she's in the house past the lease and then, you know, performing and then going back to the house even. So they had a six months late. They had a six month lease. It wasn't six oh, weeks. It was six have, months. Yeah. She had six or was weeks it six left weeks? on it or something like that. Oh, OK. Yeah. That there's that much time left on it, I believe, when the whole thing happened. And she, But she stays beyond it. I had a question about the, the so-called owner who shows up. Remember? He shows yeah. up because he wants that dresser. He's the like mundane life walks in? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, my question is, does mundane life walk in? And if it does, I mean, remember he shows up after theoretically Mr. Tuttle disappears or disappeared? Uh, he, I mean, well, Mr. Tuttle comes in and out and is back again. I think he's back again after that, even. After the the owner came looking for the dresser? Maybe not, no. But my question is, why did he do that? What was Delilo's point of put, bringing in the owner looking for a dresser at that point? Well, I think that Mary set it up like it's a counterpoint to, you know, she has this dream of a guy showing up to the house and it's in her mind shot from underneath and he's a pow- oppressive power and he's coming to tell her the story explaining Mr. Tuttle and she comes up with an evolving story as she thinks about it. And then later on, an, a man really does approach her and it is a little bit oppressive and she thinks this might be the moment that the psychiatric thing is going to play out and someone's going to tell her what's going to happen. And then she loses interest precisely whenever it's a dumb, unmeaningful thing that she doesn't really have to worry about. Really, he's here to get a a chest of drawers back and it's not meaningful anymore. And so she just kind of tunes it out and is left back in ambiguity without that. Even though she imagined it and then it really happened, it didn't provide her imaginary answer. And so it's, you know, just a 
consequence of just life coming back in and uh, not really helping out much. It shows the narcissism on both ends as far as, you know, she drops or she stops paying attention, like you mentioned, when it has no significance to her. And what the owner precisely is doing is seeking out an object that has significance to him and she's standing in his way. So <laughs> communication kind of breaks down when, mm-hmm. as Kant would say, when you're using another person as an ends rather than a means. <laughs> One of the things that you could compare, I think, is the final uh, performance piece that she does with Mr. Tuttle himself. And one of the differences there, I think, that are interesting, because they're both sort of, if you see Mr. Tuttle mostly, I guess, as I kind of see him as uh, a manifestation of her grief or a projection, a sort of uh, amalgam of memory and and uh, emotion and things like that, um, that sort of is a creation of hers as well as uh, the performance piece at the end. And the difference between those two creations, I think, is sort of an interesting one, because one of the things that she does in that piece at the end is is she is really imitating physically parts of Ray and parts of Mr. Tuttle. And one of the things involved in that is, is it's, it's the body, right? You know, Mr. Tuttle, a lot of times is to me associated with the mental, right? He's associated with ideas and memories and mm. things that are sort of like floating around in your mind. Whereas, you know, when she's actually acting out the physical things that, you know, the physical changes that her body goes through, that's a different way of knowing. It's no longer this sort of heady, sort of, uh, you know, slippery idea kind of way, but it's this physical thing that you feel and it's not wrapped up in concepts so much. And it seemed like that was a sort of a mile marker for her and her grief. Part of the process of getting through the whole thing or going through what she was going through was like, that was some mysterious part of it anyway. Did you guys get any of that sense? That there was a difference between that kind of knowing and the kind of knowing that she was doing with Mr. Tuttle? I hadn't really thought of those differences until you put it like that. But yes, I mean, that's, yeah, she's trying to get hardcore knowledge from him, recounting the dialogue and the facts of how how he and whatever. But then she's imitating him, him personally and manifesting him, which I think is the coolest thing about the ending and the performance piece is that she manifests this creation that we took to be material, maybe like maybe this is a real person. But then at the end, I think it's pretty clear that this is her creation. And I think it's beautiful how she brings it to life. And then is, I mean, uses him to process it, uses him to to find her art in it, and then is ultimately dissatisfied. Because how could you ever put the grief of losing someone into an hour or 90 minutes? How could you actually, could anyone ever really do that? So there's got to be, he was, Mr. Tuttle, very helpful in getting that out. But if you were going to make a, a true piece of art about loss, then it would be every moment of, of every day, there would be a little chunk of that moment that you would have to contribute to the piece because it doesn't end. You can't just make an artwork and close the door on it. It becomes a huge part of your waking life, of your sleeping life, of your entire life. And especially if it's, if you lose someone in there and it's got all of that pathos wrapped up in it of suicide and the third wife and the second wife and the the rented house and all of those things. 
So I can understand why she would want to do it. And I can also understand her dissatisfaction, like having to do something and then there's going to be dissatisfaction. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, with that dissatisfaction, there's a little bit of a silver lining because she would like to do more of it. I think that would drive her to do more and dig deeper. And maybe even that would be dissatisfying at the end. Ultimately, I think that there's something to that. Um, well, isn't it to, when she finally sort of breaks down and cries, um, isn't that's after the section with the performance piece and the art review, right? I don't think so, but... Um, no? No, I think that that's whenever she handles it and then remembers the breakfast in a different way. There is a final section after that, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right? there she is. She goes back to the house again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that's whenever she sees the Japanese lady again and remembers how she would have done it differently and she had noticed the balled up hands. You know, she would have put that into her work. Yeah, no hands. Take the hands away. That was interesting. I thought what she actually would have done. Empty sleeves. Yeah, because part of the piece is like she's she's obsessed with like this materiality of the body and she's cleaning herself and exfoliating and stripping herself away like she's trying to whittle herself down to some essence you know and it parallels this uh constant perception of the little moments and the little ticks and idiosyncrasies uh that make up our relationships with people you know they're all those little tiny moments and things like that that add up to the whole thing but every single one of them just seems like a little trivial trivial absurdity by itself and it's sort of that way with your body too i mean your fingernails <laughs> your little things that you wash down the drain they're they're you too and you're made up of these little bits yeah and it, wouldn't it be nice sometimes if you could actually exfoliate someone from your life all i have to do is go <laughs> have a petty and they'll do you know they'll do the soles of my feet and off you go <laughs> <laughs> I need my brain exfoliated or my mind exfoliated. I can see the commercial now, you know, Dove, get rid of him. <laughs> uh, and Daniel, you were right. It is in the section afterwards um, of the critic piece uh, that she has the breakdown and remembers the breakfast and cries. Um, okay. Well, I was just wondering then, because if, if that performance piece, the whole time she's trying to hold on to Ray, you know, she's trying to, you know, find a way to, you know, just hold on to him and sink her claws into and not let him go. And I wondered if the performance piece was like the next level to a way to, you know, that total imitation was like the next way to hold on to him, like become him. And then finally, even that didn't work. And so finally she realized she's going to lose him. She's got to let him go. Well, you know, and it's interesting that she doesn't, I mean, manifest Ray so much as Mr. Tuttle, that that is actually the, you know, I think the, the best way to put it, it's like, yeah, like he's this grief avatar or something. And that's what she finds the solace in a little bit. And I find it really interesting that in the interview, she channels Mr. Tuttle live at the dinner table with her friend before leaving. And it's almost like that's the break point of reality. That's where you go to whenever you don't understand anymore, when things are overwhelming and you're just a ball of nerves. There was something about... um. Whenever she, I just lost it, but uh, whenever she uh, goes up to comfort Mr. Tuttle and uh, she realizes that, you know, he's he doesn't have any defenses. He's just like an open wound, basically. 
um, and she tries to comfort him. Maybe one of you will remember it. I'm trying to find it, but it starts off something like, you know, he was lonely, basically. It was just that simple and true, and he didn't have any defenses against himself. You know, I think that that's what's going on with her. You know, she's just, you know, like raw and, you know, asking questions and she can remember things and then it kind of like goes away. And so I think it's it's important that, you know, Mr. Tuttle is what arrives on the scene here rather than, you know, exactly her just trying to hold on to Ray. That's a large part of it. But there's also something about her own identity that she's dealing with, too, as this person. You know, it's you know, there's also the Japanese woman that she's taking into account, you know, so it's not just about this. It's this larger, I don't know, think about existence. Reminds me of this one Black Mirror episode where uh, this woman is grieving and her husband has died. And like there's this service now that will provide uh, this robot version of your dead, deceased partner or whatever um, return to you. And it, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And it's like it comes back and it it mines all the data from his social media. So it acts like him and it looks just like him. And she gets into it for a while. And then it's like all of a sudden, you know, no, this is not him. And it's too close. It's too creepy. And it seemed like to me, like the deal was like, like Nathan's saying, like, yeah, you're you're wrapped up in all of that history, too. And now with it just recycling, the thing about your relationship with them was that you were always creating new moments. The present was always, you know, novel. But now it's just like sort of recycling and reflecting the old and, you know, it's not authentic anymore. In that Black Mirror, she she has a kid. And I think that that's part of it. It's like the, the real world comes in, but she does let the kid, you know, like visit them once a year or something like that on her birthday (laughs) (laughs) up in the attic. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Super creepy. Yeah. I uh, I found that bit on 96. Um, it's uh, whenever she goes up and hears Mr. Tuttle crying. Uh, she says, he was scared. How simple and true. She tried to tend him, numb him to his fear. He was here in the howl of the world. This was the howling face, the stark, the not as if of things. But how could she know this? She could not. Maybe he was just arranged, unroutinely nuts. Not that it's ever routine. A nutcase who tries to live in other voices. I like that unroutinely nuts. But, you know, basically, you know, like he, he's, he's just exposed to the way things are. You want to do some favorite lines or... I mean, we haven't talked about the uh, webcam on Finland's busy highway, or not so busy highway. Oh, yeah, Kotka. Yeah, Kotka. I just think that's really important. I mean, she used it as a projection in her piece. You know, it's this kind of place without time. You know, you can see the cars coming and going, but the way that the camera is set up and the way that the weather is, the way that like the, the light is, it's just dim and foggy and gray. It looks like any time. And whenever you see a car go by, it could just be any car. And it's something that's comforting to her. And I think it's kind of tied up in the the, the tuttleness. It's this kind of like a blank place. It's this, it's, it's untethered from reality in the usual ways. It's not like you can see a big landmark or, you know, um, there is the timer going in the bottom right of the screen, which is interesting, but that's almost like a joke. It almost highlights the real fact of it being kind of like any time, even though there is, you know, you can see it's December, whatever, whatever. It doesn't matter. It just, I don't know, like seeing that the timer is there almost proves that it's timeless because by trying to hold on to it, by trying to give it a number, you know, you just connect a series of samenesses basically um that are that are there yeah it was like her abstract you know what she's trying to abstract at it was like it was 
it was happening in quotation in quotation marks her favorite part of the feed was when nothing was happening in that sense it like encompassed this abstract uh experience out there timelessness as you said yeah i wonder if part of that's like you know as detached you know as close to seeing sort of like the bird see as you can get as a person you know like having no personal connection to whatever raw sense data you know is coming through your perceptual apparatus you know to just have this window into some weird far-off place that you have no you know personal significance with you know whatsoever yeah i'd like to see some of these now i mean i I think they have there's one on a space station which i think is like just a 24 7 feed of its orbit and i think they do some with like endangered animals or whatever like have you know one near a falcon's nest or something um uh, i wonder if you could really find this um but then again usually whenever that's the case you find it's an invention of the author you know just like i would love to see the real map pictures that were supposedly taken in the map in the territory by Hulebeck or the 24 seven psycho screening, you know, but I have a feeling that never, those never happened. Oh no. DeLillo's, um, the 24 hour psycho, I think was a real awesome. There's somebody, some reviewer I read, uh, talking about, I mean, many, many of his books at some point have some kind of art in them. And a lot of times it's a real art and he's either like in this one, he made up the art thing almost just like, so he could write the review. You almost wonder like, why doesn't he just like start writing art reviews because he loves art so much and he loves to write about it so much. But yeah, a lot of times it is a real thing. See, I I felt like that is, you know, whenever you have an imagination of something, but you can't really be a body artist yourself, you know, like this is a way of, I would do this if I had the time or inclination, but I just don't realistically. And this is the way I can put this forward. You know, I can write the review of the thing I wish were tr- were real. And because I'd never had heard of someone, I mean, dancers, sure, but a body artist? I've never heard that. I wonder if there is such a thing. I mean, I, I guess I just thought of it as like a performance art or... Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Well, I suppose we can make our uh, way around to uh, favorite lines. Cesare, you got any? Uh, I actually think my favorite one was, I think you actually said the the, uh, the part, Laura, uh, at the very beginning with the twirling leaf. I just love that description. Say another one on my version of uh, page 82. This is when she's with Mr. Tuttle. He was staring at her. He seemed to be staring, but probably wasn't. She didn't think his eye was able to search out and shape things. Not like normal, anyways. The eye is supposed to shape and process and paint. It tells us a story we want to believe. That's it. Well, that's like the bird thing that you were bringing up, Daniel, again. Uh, Just to see that, just to hear that now connects that with um, what we were talking about, those layers of perception and different people. Daniel, Um, you got one? Yeah, I I don't have a favorite line, actually, because I don't have the book in front of me. Ah. Um, The only thing I'll say, I guess, is that uh, I love DeLillo's work. I enjoyed rereading this book. One of the things that constantly impresses me about him is that he's so versatile and he's not a one-trick pony like so many authors are. He can find any subject and just trust in his ability to give it really close attention and examination and come up with something. And time and time again, he seems to come up with more than meets the eye. You know, he seems to just find this incredibly fresh and philosophical take on things. And, you know, this is not a ghost story like any I'd ever read before. First of all, I have a couple of lines that just, I mean, a lot of his lines just jump out at me. The one, I'll give you one lines, a couple of one lines that I just love, and then uh, two paragraphs. I could just read the whole book. <laughs> anyway. Well, we're um, almost there. Okay. All right. One of the lines I liked was, he violates the limits of the human. I liked, it is about 
who we are when we are not rehearsing who we are. I like that one. And then these are two paragraphs that I like. Why shouldn't the death of a person you love bring you into lurid ruin? You don't know how to love the ones you love until they disappear abruptly. Then you understand how thinly distanced from their suffering, how sparing of self you often were, only rarely unguarded of heart, working your networks of give and take. And then this paragraph, which I really love. She cleaned the bathroom using the spray gun bottle of disinfectant. Then she held the nozzle of the spray gun to her head, seeing herself as doing what anyone might do alone without special reference to the person's circumstances. It was the pine scent bottle, the pistol grip bottle of tile and grout killer, killer of mildew. And she held the nozzle, the muzzle to her head, finger pressed to the plastic trigger with her tongue hanging out for effect. This is what people do, she thought alone in their lives. And then one last line. This line I I say because when I read it, and it's toward the beginning of the book, and just one line, but it just stunned me. And that happened periodically throughout this book when I just like, you know, I would just catch my breath like, oh my God, you know, and this one just really, really took me. Anyway, this is what it was. Only one line. The plan was to organize time until she could live again. In many ways, I think that's kind of what this whole book is about. Because when you're trying to organize time, you're also going into how you can't organize time. Now it's uncapturable. All very nice. Okay. Mine's a paragraph. Sorry. And this is when she's she's talking with Tuttle, but at some point, Ray's real laughter comes in. It's a, it's a defining moment for her. And she said, this was not some communication with the dead. It was Ray alive in the course of a talk he'd had with her in this room not long after they'd come here. She was sure of this, recalling how they'd gone upstairs and dropped into a night of tossing sensation, drifts of sex, confession and pale sleep. And it was confession as belief in each other, not unburdenings of guilt, but avowals of belief, mostly his and stricken by need. And then drowsy sex again, two people passing through each other, easy and airy as sea spray, and how he told her that she was helping him recover his soul. Yeah, I think that's a big indication there, too, of yeah. this third wife, you know, again, like we, you know, wondered why then. And then why did I, you know, I guess I couldn't help him recover his soul enough that he wanted to keep it in this world. Uh, you know, like that, the kind of oh, man. grief that goes with that, uh, that loss. All right. Mine's on 130. It's uh, three sentences. Take the risk. Believe what you see and hear. It's the pulse of every secret intimation you've ever felt around the edges of your life. I mean, let me just say, I, I just really love this book. Um, to the extent that you all did, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it. You're, you're, you're welcome. Thanks for, you know, reading it. Yeah. I mean, just the, the reveal at the end, I, you know, we've, I've talked about this before and so I feel like I've, you know, been holding back a little bit, but I was just so stunned with how she actually brought this thing to life. It was like a third twist that this was something that she had some kind of control over, you know, and uh, was able to not just be haunted by it, but actually become the ghost in a way. It's just a powerful story. This is one of those. Uh, this is one of the books that I just like read front to back really quickly. And uh, you know, as we're ta- you know as we're talking, there's so much that I missed and didn't um, didn't pay attention to that it deserves. Can't waste words. Was there another one <laughs> that was like that for you, Cesar? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I I'll just you know I'll I'll put up the excuse of being reading way too much and being stressed out. But uh, but this, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm definitely I'm definitely gonna go back to this book because there there are definitely a bunch of gems. I think it's worth definitely exploring more what we talked about. 
I kind of want to read some of his early novels now because I've read so much of his mid to late stuff that I'd like to see sort of how he started out and matured before he became like this super complicated writer that he is now. The thing that's weird that like I noticed about Don DeLillo as I was going through doing like a binge of his books is that every single one feels a little bit different. And it was only after like five or six that I really felt like I started to see the common sort of the traits of a single writer behind all these books and the voice of Don DeLillo, you know, to, to identify a style. I mean, he's really versatile to me. Well, let me say, I mean, I think one thing in common is just having read White Noise, and I don't think that I read Point Omega, but I must have. I think I did read it. Point Omega is about the family and the... Uh, you did. Okay, all right, thank it. you. And then I'm getting them mixed up because the endings are always very powerful for me. I mean, so if you read White Noise, no spoilers, but there's a huge turn of events in the second part. Uh, and the same thing with Point Omega at the end, whenever, he, I mean, I, I think about the scene that he has with the nun at the end is like, one of the most powerful sections of the book that kind of comes out of nowhere. And it seems like you're in a post-apocalyptic world in the second half. And it, there's always this, but I, I can't characterize beyond just those three that I've read, but um, I'm always surprised by how powerful they are, though they're rooted in like dinners with families. And then they'll take you <laughs> on a road trip with death in the rearview mirror coming for you uh, in the case of the toxic airborne event and uh, point Omega. So I just read his new one, Zero K, which is all about sort of like cryogenics and like consciousness being uploaded into the machine. And, you know, it's sort of the same kind of futuristic stuff he's hinted at all along. Yeah, because if you read Point Omega, the the fella that he's friends with, the main character, I forget his name, uh, Daniel, but uh, the friend that, you know, is like the loner intellectual. And uh, he, you know, the, the narrator is a master of Hitler studies, you know. Are you talking about? Oh, I am? Okay. Point Omega was the one where the guy goes out to the desert. That's to right. I've got them switched then. The former military and that's the, guy. It's kind of based on that Fog of War documentary with Robert mm, McNamara. Yeah, I really, I didn't realize that was the connection there because I like the Robert uh, McNamara documentary. But yeah, I'm, I'm getting them switched. But uh, that one character he's friends with, you know, just his, the joy of the book for me was just hearing his thoughts on how we reproduce culture and like his far out thoughts, you know, that, uh, so there's just a lot going on here uh, intellectually with the characters. And I think like if you want to do white noise, like for me, the way to do it is on audiobook because the version that's out there the actors they have doing it are so deadpan it makes it really funny hmm. which was like it really kind of threw me when i because that was the first delillo i ever read and then when i read more i was like wow this isn't funny <laughs> <laughs> i thought they were all going to be that funny this isn't funny <laughs> no that's it's a, <laughs> something funny in this body artist i just listened to infinite jest it's 55 hours long. Whoa. Uh, and that's without, they just have someone come in and say the number for the footnote. They don't read the footnotes. I mean, the, the end notes. That's without the last, whatever, 100 pages of, of end notes in whatever six point type. How was it to listen to? Because I've sort of like toyed with that idea, but I was afraid because of the footnote structure that I wouldn't be getting the real experience. I think that it would be better if they actually had given you the opportunity to listen to the footnotes, but I do think it's a good way to a good way to process the book because there are parts of it. It's interesting the parts of it that I found tedious when I read it twenty years ago. They they flopped. 
<laughs> yeah, there were because there, there's sections. There are different. There are different characters, different sections that are going on. So I really enjoyed it, and I I love his use of language. When I say that there are things that are little, I guess that he and um, Don DeLillo developed a friendship, a correspondence, and a friendship. Uh, really? Uh, yeah, when David wow. Foster Wallace was still alive, and the way the casual way, I think that in the beginning of this book he used it. David Foster Wallace will say, and so like the thing, and so he'll actually use those words. And so like the way that people Mm -hmm. speak. And when David Foster Wallace does it, it's interesting and uh, doesn't bother me. But when people are speaking and they say the word like a thousand times, or they they use the word like in that way, it bugs me. And I do it myself and I catch myself and it bugs me. So there are those, there's this studied yet casual use of modern tics that I find interesting. Modern use of language. Yeah, he had a great ear for dialect, all that too, which I think is just a really hard thing to pull off. Yeah, I love uh, his pacing, David Foster Wallace's pacing, how uh, he can match the you know the tone of what he's writing about with kind of the verbiage and and the and the and the, and the speed that it that it's supposed yeah. to have. Cesare, didn't you read uh, brief interviews with hideous men not too long ago? I read one of the stories in it, or a couple of the stories in it, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't read it front to back. There's this one story in there about like a guy at a neighborhood pool or something like that. I've read the one. And yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's one of my favorite ones. I read it, but I, I read it when it came out. It's been a while. My favorite short story by him is the, um, oh man, I forget the title, but it's the one uh, like Burns Children, the one where the uh, the child mm. spills water, hot water on itself. And it's just a really like one sentence account of that. Incarnations of Burned Children. It was this Esquire story. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Who, what's next, by the way? I think Infinite Jess is now like the major one by him I haven't read. I just finished The Pale King. Yeah. What did you guys think about that? I'd one? like to stage the scene with uh, him levitating in the... Um in the bar mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to be able to stage it with like a, some kind of small special effect but basically having this woman you know coming back to him being in him being such a supreme listener that it gets like supernatural um i think that would just be a uh, a cool thing to see because i i could really see that scene in my mind yeah that was one of the better parts